Well, glad you're with us this morning, and as Steve is on vacation, uh, my name is Ken. I'm one of the elders here at Grace and have been attending Grace for almost 30 years. That's been a long time, uh, but uh, through those, God has blessed uh, our family in so many different ways, through hardships and through uh, plenty, and um, so it's just part of the process as God takes you along the life uh, and the path that you go what he allows in your lives for his purpose. And this is no different. This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel. And you may be wondering, why 1 Samuel? I mean, it's an Old Testament thing, and why in the world would you want to teach on something like that? Well, I'll tell you, it was a message in the working for the past two months. And it's personal to me. And it really centers around verse 12, but we're not going to get there till next week. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to build a foundation before we get there so that when we do get to verse 12, it'll be more understandable, have better meaning and depth and so on uh, than just what we might read cursing over it. And the reason why is because as many of us in this room have probably experienced some things in our lives, whether they be good or not so good, uh, make us remember And 1 Samuel is part of that in chapter 7. And the reason why, again, verse 12 sticks out in my mind is because of going through a personal situation in the last couple months. And that being of a medical issue that uh, was uncertain and uh, probably procrastinated for a longer period of time than I should have. Uh, But finally, uh, through much prayer, anxiety, fear, and seeking God... For the last three months, Shelley and I made it through to the point where uh, in April, the first part of April, when we received the doctor's call, was a, a time of praise. And getting to that point is where I want to take us in the next couple of weeks. Because sometimes we start here and we end here and we forget what's in the middle. And what's in the middle is so important to our, our lives as believers, the sanctification process that God allows in our lives to get us to a place where he already knows where he wants to take us, but we don't. And that's the uncertainty. And that sometimes causes anxiety. And I remember looking back in January, after coming back from a a, a trip to Arizona for some tests, and then uh, going through that whole month, and I kept a journal. And looking at the first two or three weeks of my journal to the last two or three weeks of my journal, and this has been about a two-month process in journaling, I saw the despair. I saw the anxiety, the fear. And then I saw how God met me, met us. There are, are times in our lives when we get to a point where we think that we have the strength to withstand anything. And we get a little bit conceited, a little bit prideful, and all of a sudden God allows something in our lives to really get our attention. And this was a case for for us personally that God revealed in my heart, my mind, Ken, you don't have it all together in this area. You are a little bit prideful in this area, and we're going to change that. Now, If most of us who have gone through difficult times could go back and say, wait a second, let me design the process, Lord, because this is what fits me. And God says, no, you don't understand. That's what you want, but that's not going to accomplish what I want. And so God said, in not so many words, Ken, I'm going to take you and Shelly through this process, but at the end of it, at the end of it, it's going to be so valuable, you don't even understand it now. And so that's kind of the emphasis of how I got to verse 12, to make a long story short. And those of you who know about it, it's called the stone of remembrance, the stone of help. And I liked it because it uses the word Ebenezer. And most of the time when we think of Ebenezer, we think of Ebenezer Scrooge. Well, this is a different type of Ebenezer. And as we go through the process, not this week, but next week, we're going to show you the examples in God's word of the many Ebenezer's that God established throughout the Old Testament. And then we're going to relate it personally. 
But in order to get there, we have to build a foundation. We need to look back, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Oh, it's up there. And we need to get in context so we know where we're going and why. We need to understand the first six six chapters before we can come to chapter 7. We need to see how God prepared his people and a prophet of God named Samuel. We need to recall the story before we can get to the beginning of the end of the very last judge of Israel. Samuel became an intercessor for the nation. He was an answer to a broken-hearted mother's prayer. And my goal in these next couple weeks is to build a biblical foundation for personal sanctification, for congregational edification, and for God's glorification. When we look at the book of Samuel, we see how a a mother's pain, how the judgment of God, how the call on Samuel's life, how the preparation of the people, how the victory, and how the continuation, continuation of the nation was sustained. But let's first open our hearts to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. Lord, we know that your word is living. We know that it's unchanging. We know the depth and breadth, Lord, that it provides to us and for us. Lord, I pray this morning as we look into your word, would you open the doors of our heart, the eyes of our heart? Would you, through your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts, Lord? That we can not only see this from Samuel's perspective, but apply it in a personal way to our own lives. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, let's open to Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1. You can go to the next one, Alex. Samuel's birth. First of all, Samuel had to be born. But it was a painstaking part on his mother before he ever came into existence. So Hannah's pain is established, verses 5 through 10. She was barren, she was ridiculed, and she was humiliated. Then we have Hannah's prayer, verses 11 through 20, that her prayer that God would grant her a son. Then we have Hannah's pledge, verses 21 through 25, that if Lord blessed her with that son, that she would dedicate this son to the Lord. Could you imagine after praying for so long that you finally got God's prayer answered and then you had to give up what you were praying for? Faithfulness. Then Hannah's promises, verses 26 through 28, she handed Samuel over to the high priest Eli as she had committed and promised. So not only do... When we pray, we pray for God's help, we pray for God's faithfulness, but then when he answers us, a lot of times we go, thank you, Lord, and we move on. Hannah said, no, Lord, I promise to give my son back to you. I'm going to honor that and honor you by doing exactly what I said. And we need to learn from that. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we have what I call Hannah's praise. Hannah's psalm of praise is verses 1 through 10 when she gives thanksgiving to the Lord for answered prayer for that son that she longed for. Also found in verses 12 through 17, we have the description of the priest Eli's worthless sons, the abuse of their office as priests. And then verses 18 through 20, we have the beginning of Samuel's ministry. But lo and behold, isn't it like God that in verse 21, Hannah is blessed with more children. After a time of being barren and praying that God would just give her one son, God blesses her with more children. And then verses 22 through 36, God judges Eli's household and his sons. Look at verse 34, if you would, with me in chapter 2. 
It says, and what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, I will be, it will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. Imagine as a father being told that kind of news about one of your children. About both of your children. Then we see in verse, 1 Samuel chapter 3, God finally calls Samuel. In verses 8 through 10, it's interesting how three times Samuel runs to Eli, thinking that Eli is calling him. And finally, Eli says, I think the Lord's calling you. And finally, Samuel realizes that, yes, in true, it was God. In verses 12 through 14, God's prophetic judgment on Eli's house. And in verses 15 through 18, Samuel gives Eli the bad news of God's impending judgment. In verses 19 through 21, Samuel is established as a prophet from God. Then we have a change of events in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The ark is captured. If we read through there, we will see that the intention of Israel was to bring the ark into battle as a form of a good luck charm, so to speak, because they put more faith in the ark than they did in the God of the ark. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, we look at the contents, which says, which had a golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the gold pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the tables of the covenant. What was significant about those three things is that manna was the food. It was a reminder of Israel, a reminder to Israel of God's miraculous provision for them daily for 40 years. The tablets of stone, obviously, were the Ten Commandments, and it reminded Israel of God's expectation for their lives and his ways of being the only right ways. And Aaron's rod, who was a priest, reminded Israel that they needed a priest to mediate between them and a holy God. Thankfully, today we have that mediator in Christ, who is our mediator between us and God, who is our high priest. Israel's mistake was to bring the ark for the wrong reasons into battle, and that allowed the enemy to steal it. In verses 10 through 11, we see that Eli's sons are killed as predicted. And with that news, we see Eli falling over, breaking his neck, and dying as well. It was too much. And then to further matters even more, Phineas' wife gives birth to a son and named him Ichabod which means the glory has departed. Could you imagine walking around with a moniker named Ichabod on your life? Wow. Hi, my name's Ichabod. Oh, no, stay away from him. I don't want to be close to him. But that's the progression of God's judgment. In 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines understand or underestimate God's power. This is... If you have a chance to go and look at this, this is really amazing. That they take the ark and they start setting it in places where their gods are. And this one god, Dagon, I just I find it amazing how God mocks other gods. And it says, after the Philistines had captured the ark, they took it from Ebenezer, and we'll talk about that next week, to Eshad. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashad rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Duh. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground of the ark. Now his head and hands had been broken and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. And that is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor the others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashod step on that threshold. Yeah. 
See, God can't be messed with. God is a holy God and demands our worship. To put him in a place of another God and to come in, not only did he fall on his face once, that wasn't enough, but then he dismembered him to the point where they got the message. And finally, as we get to chapter 6, we see the Philistines are going, okay, that's enough. We've got to get rid of this. We've got to put it back where it belongs, but get it out of the city. And we, when you go through chapter 6, you see all the different plagues that happened to the different cities. Every time the ark was placed in a city, there was a judgment on the city. Then they moved it to another city. There was a judgment, and they moved it to another one. Then amazingly enough, they thought, you know what? We've got to return this. So they built a cart. And they chose milk cows to, to carry or to um, lead, draw the cart. And you might say, well, how come they didn't use oxen? Well, here we see God's intervention in using milk cows. Milk cows need to be led. Also, milk cows were not meant to pull carts. Milk cows tend to wander. And at this particular time, milk cows, they say they were lowing, meaning they had calves that were wanting milk from their moms. There's no way that a milk cow would ever abandon unless forced. But God's plan would not be hindered. They didn't wander. They didn't stop to eat some grass. They went straight ahead appointed by God to the place where God had to stop them. And so that leads us up to verse 7, or excuse me, chapter 7. In chapter 7, I just want to read through, to kind of get us familiar with where we're going, so that we can um, just have a clearer understanding. It was a long time, some 20 years in all, that the ark remained in Kareth-Jerim. And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel at that time was the leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that, the, that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines and because of the last part, last time they were defeated. They said to Samuel, do not, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up to the whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in the battle. But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out to Mizpah, pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them all along the way to a point below Bethkar. And we'll stop there. Chapter 7 opens up with the lamenting of Israel. For the past 20 years, they have been far from God. Things have not gone well. Battles they have fought and lost. Many men have died, and the Philistines are still in control. You see, they had good reason to lament. Their cities were in ruins. Their armies were defeated. They were under Philistine domination. And because they would not and were not right with God because they had turned away their loyalty and their worship. God was judging them. 
You may ask, where was Samuel all this time? And all of a sudden from chapter 4 to verse chapter 7, we don't hear about Samuel. And Spurgeon says, it may very naturally be asked about where Samuel was. He says, I know not what he was doing during those 20 years, but I have a suspicion. I may say I have a firm persuasion that he was going from place to place, preaching in quiet spots wherever he could, gathering an audience, warning the people of their sin, and stirring them up to seek Jehovah, thus endeavoring to infuse some spirituality into their life. I think that's a reasonable explanation of where Samuel might have been. The ark had spread disaster, and the willingness of the men of Kareth Jerem to receive it was a token of their devotion. The name of the city means City of the Woods or Woodville, suggests that the situation of the little town was tucked up in some tufted trees where the ark lay for so long, apparently without sacrifices and simply watched over by Eleazar, who was probably of the house of Aaron. Eli's family now is eliminated. Shiloh seems to have been destroyed. And all the events have taken place. And for 20 years, internal disorganization, foreign oppression, dominated the nation. This word lamenting, if you haven't lamented in your life before, I think probably many of you would identify with lamenting. It's a deep and continued sorrow, a moaning or wailing from the soul of being greatly oppressed, having an attitude of hopelessness. At times in our lives, those of us who have faced difficult things, whether they be physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, have felt that attitude, have felt that emotion. And we may feel that way because we feel God has abandoned us as the nation did. Their possessions were taken, their children were enslaved, their freedom was stolen, their spirit was bankrupt. Their God was replaced, their lives hopeless, and they believed that their existence was doomed. I think many of us here in this room have felt some of those things at times in our lives. But the remedy that Samuel's prescribed has not changed because people are still sinners in need of forgiveness and restoration. How about regret? You ever been regretful? Regret is just upset over a past action or a statement. That's it. I'm just upset. Have you been sorrowful before in grief? And lamenting, again, to mourn deeply in your inner part. And what does that usually lead to, hopefully, in our lives? Repentance. We acknowledge our sin, we ask for forgiveness, and we change our direction. We're going to see the gospel in the next few verses unfold in these very words. So let's look at verse number one there in your outline is the instructions, verses three through four. I think it's interesting how it's written here, if and then, we'll go over that, but it's a cause and effect somewhat conditional, a process to be followed for God's purpose. Many of us know 2 Chronicles 7.14. God speaking to Solomon says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Great part of Scripture. Verses 3 and 4. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts... Then put away the foreign gods and the ashtroths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the ashtroths 
and served the Lord only. If you return, a recommitment for the nation, it's a change of mind. In Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 3, we, we see, And when all these things came upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes, have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. It's one thing to make a recommitment. And we don't really know when somebody recommits their life or repents because it's an inward thing. We don't usually see it. So God allows the next part of the verse to say, as he said before, I want you to do this with all your hearts. Again, looking to their inward part. You know, we can... We can say all we want that we've changed and we've, we've gotten rid of some things and we don't do this anymore, and yet we continue in some of those things that we used to. Well, you can talk all you want, but how you live really exposes your heart. And God is asking, if you really believe this, if this is real, then do it with all your hearts, meaning that the inward part of your being needs to change. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your might. Another condition. Remove. Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashrafs from among you. Now, here is the outward expression of the inward change. God is saying, okay, I hear, I expect, I know your sincerity, but now I want to see it put to action. This is a change of worship. Purifying your households. For some reason in my journaling, I came across Psalm 115. Because of prideful attitudes and complacency and different things going on, I associated in my life that they were idols that were keeping me from God. And this is what Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8 says. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but in your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. Why let the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, and he does as he wishes. Their idols are merely things of silver and gold, shaped by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes that cannot see. They have ears that cannot hear. Noses that cannot smell. Hands that cannot feel. Feet that cannot walk. And throats that cannot make a sound. And those who make idols are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Isn't it like man to take his creative ability and create something to worship it, to give him power? (laughs) I mean, when you think about what is written here, and we have things in our society that we can look at that are made by human hands that have all these inequalities such as a mouth that cannot speak, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, yet we have people praying to them and offering to them incense and all kinds of different things. Isaiah 42.8 says, and this is the clincher, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carven images or idols. You see, a worse enemy than the Philistines held their loyalty over the nation. The people were in double bondage. They were in the bondage of the heavy yoke of the Philistines, but a heavier burden was the worship of false gods that had hardened their hearts over a period of time. What's amazing is as I was going through this, and I, for some reason in my mind, looking through different things as you do when you study, I came across, unbeknownst to me, that most of us, when we see the Ten Commandments, we see them in a 
a form that has been muted, that has been lessened because they can fit in a certain space. So I just want to take a little bit of time and I want to show you the difference. We know that these are written out of the book of Exodus. And I want to just inform you that usually the tradition is that the first two commandments are put together as one. And it reads this way, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not have strange gods before me or besides me. Then they go on to commandment number two, commandment number three. Then they take the last commandment and they split it in two so then they get the ten. I'll explain. I know you're all looking up here going, what's in here? And now, and then you'll see the reason why. The first commandment says, as according to God's word in Exodus, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. One. Number two, you shall have no other gods before me. Next, here's where the difference changed. It says, you shall not have strange gods before me. Okay. This is what it really says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. So far, so good. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Continue. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing me steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's number two. In its abbreviated form, we don't get the detail and the specifics of what it really says to not have strange gods before him. Now, had the Church of Rome printed that number two, they would have found themselves in hot water because of the things that exist I grew up in that. I understand that. I'm familiar with that. And I didn't know that they had abbreviated that and keep that on their website and establish that as part of their Ten Commandments. So this idea of images and idols is serious. Baal, the god of fertility and the god of weather, was believed to the son of, guess who? Dagon, who was destroyed face down. Ashtaroth, goddess of love and fertility. And they vied for supremacy with Ashtaroth, mother goddess and consort. Now, these are, the, these are the things that men have given them, the powers. So you can kind of create whatever you want. However, but... Before we cast stones, we need to look at our own lives. We may not have carved images in our houses, or paintings, or writings, or artifacts, but we have idols in our hearts, in our minds. Just a small list, maybe, that you can identify with. How about time? Could time be an idol? How about work? How about technology? How about information? I want to stop right there for a moment because that was one of the things that God really spoke to me about. In doing a lot of research on the issue that I was looking at, I did enormous amounts of research on the Internet. I overwhelmed myself with information. To the point, I did learn some things, but to the point where I was so confused, there was a point where in my prayer time, God says, leave it alone because that has taken the place of what I want to tell you. And I went, wow, I didn't even see that one. So information can be an idol. How about materialistic things? Monetary goals. Complacency or laziness. Selfishness. And you can add to this list because each one of us have our own. The question is, we all have to answer is this. What is it in my life that is taking God's place on his throne? What is it? 
Number four, restore. God says, prepare your hearts for the Lord. It's a change of attitude. First Chronicles 29, 18, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. That's what God allows in our lives, the circumstances, the trials, is to drive us to God. And you know, there's times when you might be going through a difficult time and you're reading. through the, I read through the book of Psalms continually. And there's certain Psalms that stick out in my mind that really spoke to my heart in the need that I was asking God. But it was hard. I just wanted to release it and say, okay, I've, I've had it. Just give me the answer so I can move on. And God says, no, you don't understand. Again, like I said before, I'm doing this for your sanctification. This is my purpose in your life. So God had to direct me to himself. Had to break through those areas in my heart. Number five, redirect. Again, prepare your hearts and serve him only. It's a change of allegiance. A change of allegiance. Matthew 16, 24 through 26 says, Israel did not feel that they had rejected the Lord. They felt they only added the worship of their gods to the Lord's to the worship of the Lord. But Samuel called and said to them, No, you've turned your back on God. You need to serve him only. And then that passage in Matthew 16 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If any of you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is it profit a man if he gains the whole world forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Number five, the rescue. That's number six, the rescue. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Now we have a change of outcome. Not Samuel, not their intellect, not their strength, and not their desire, but God alone will deliver them. In my research, I thought that I could gain enough understanding to make right decisions and choices, which to some of that extent is true, but not to depend upon it. And that's where I found myself, is depending more on that than trusting God alone to deliver me. Psalm 62, 5-7 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. And finally, in, in verse 4, they served the Lord only. It was a change of life. Deuteronomy 13.4 says, You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments and listen to his voice. Serve him and cling to him. And also in 1 Samuel 12, verses 20 through 24, Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Isn't that amazing? Even though we do rotten things, and sometimes we go, I, I can't... I, can't pray about it. I can't ask somebody to pray with me. I can't, I can't even read God's word. And that's a distraction from the enemy. God wants us to go directly to him immediately, even in spite of that. He already knows about it. It's one thing I learned going through my process. Psalm 139 just spoke to my heart in so many ways. God knows everything there is to know about myself. He knows my words before I speak them. He knows the things I'm thinking before I think them. And I started going, Lord, I'm starting to understand why am I fretting over this? You don't want me to fret. You want me to trust and, and surrender and let go. But there's obstacles in our lives. And God allows those obstacles in our lives. And he allows them for a reason. And that reason, again, is to break us in areas of our lives that need broken 
to continue to mature us in areas of our lives that we're weak in? You see, there's no retirement as a believer. I just want you to know that. I don't care how old you are. God will not let go of you and your life. You may hinder the process and walk from him, but he is always there. He always wants us to be dependent on him, no matter what it is. How do we do that? God's word. But prayer. On Wednesday nights, we're talking about the armor of God. And at the end of Ephesians 6.18, it talks about all these things. But then it says, through prayer. Prayer is such an important process. Now, I'm going to be honest and open with you this morning. Because God has taught me and shown me. But there are processes prior to that one that I've been through that I prayed very infrequently. God got my attention this time to the point where I now have a time each morning that I go before the Lord in a prayer by myself, read His Word, and reflect on what I'm seeing and what I'm learning, what God is showing me. And believe me, in my journal, like I said, for the first three weeks to the last two or three weeks or month, you can see the change that God did in my life. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Praise be to Him. But prayer is a, the basic definition is how we talk to God. You know, sometimes we think of large words. We want to think of the right things to say. We want to just not mess up. But you know what? Go to God with what you have. End of story. Because God already knows it. He already knows what's in your heart. Oh, Lord, I can't come before you because I, I did this over here. And God, I know that. I already know that. All I need you to is confess it to me. Recognize that I know it. And let's move on. Prayer is described in the Bible as seeking God's favor, pouring out one's soul, crying out to God, drawing near to Him, kneeling, humbling ourselves. That's what prayer is. Philippians 4, 6-7, familiar verse. Do not be anxious. This is another one that I really clung on to, too. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, every or all things, every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. I like this. Worry about Nothing. Pray about everything. I like that. And believe me, through those months, when God's got you in a place of vulnerability, it's amazing the brokenness that you can experience. But on the other side, the redemptive power that God has to restore. In our prayers, we must admit that God is greater than we are. And ultimately knows what is best at any given situation. Don't be afraid to pray. Allow God to work in that prayer process. We have prayer and we have his word. Those two are the most powerful things we possess as believers. You know, we sometimes put our faith in men, in politics, organizations, all kinds of things. And that's one thing that going through this process, God really brought me to an understanding. And I'm just saying this because this is what God placed in my heart. When I was going through this, I understood one thing, and that was it's more important to seek God than anything else. So I quit quit watching Fox News since January. Now, since then, a lot of things have happened. Bill O'Reilly's gone. Others have left and so on and so forth. But what I'm telling you, and this is just for me, I'm telling you that I used to absorb that stuff and associate it and assimilate it and try to blend it in. And God said, you need nothing of that. If I am in control, if you truly believe that, then I put people there. I put the president in that place. I put the senators, the congressmen, whatever it is, I put them there. And guess what? 
I'm in control. Now, the thing is, who are you trusting? You know, a lot of, I've heard it said we have a lot of vertical interaction without horizontal prayer. You know, we're, we're depending this way and not this way. And for me, God really spoke to me in a clear way because it was distracting me and distorting some of the things that God was trying to teach me. So for a time, that was a type of fasting that I, I just, um, I just partake, partook of and God blessed me for it. Number two. Number two is verses five through six, the intercession. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah. They drew water, poured it out for the Lord. They fasted, and then they said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel. First of all, he says, I will pray for you. Samuel had already called the nation to repentance, and they made a start at it. And Samuel knew God's work in them could only be completed through the prayer. The pouring out of water in this context is a ceremonial pouring out of water demonstrating the pouring out of your soul before the Lord. It's an expression of emptiness, contrition, lamentation, lamenting. The pouring out of water was a symbolic. You know, we, we have symbolisms as well today. Baptism is symbolic of the burial, death, and resurrection when we come to Christ. It's an outward expression of an inward transformation. Same thing here. The pouring out of water was an expression of the changed hearts, their sorrow. And then they fasted. Israel also expressed their sorrow over their sin by fasting. We're not told what type of fasting it was, but nonetheless, it's a type of fasting, something in your life where you has got your attention or distracts you from what God is trying to tell you, you put away like I did. I couldn't watch the news anymore at that time because of what it was doing to me. You may have other things in your life that you can identify and finally, at the end, it says, we have sinned against the Lord. A form of confession. We need to have daily confession to keep our relationship with God clear. As God convicts us of sin or sins that hinder our fellowship with him, we must confess it and receive forgiveness and cleansing for our relationship with God to continue without any problems, any hindrances. But it is meant from the heart. It's hard to make a better statement of confession than, I have sinned against you, O Lord. It's very humbling to come before God or somebody else to say, you know what? God, I have sinned against you. We know we have done it. But sometimes we hold on because it's too hard. It's our pride that won't allow us to come before God's throne of grace. And God says, you don't understand if you would just do that. There's a blessing. I just need you to acknowledge and confess what you already know and what I already realize and what I already know. And so here we are leading up we have this build-up going on. We have the intercession of prayer. We have the... On my notes, I got them wrong. <laughs> Just goes to show you how human I am. God, what a craziness. This morning, you would not believe. Just as a side note, here we are. We're going, and we're going to practice worship. And I had all the things in front of me. I had everything separated and all of a sudden, I needed a couple songs. So I go online to my website or to my email. I can't download. <laughs> I can't download the document. It's there, but I can't download it. I can't get the music for the musicians. So it's like, okay, we got to punt because I don't know what to do. But I could have lost it really easily 
And I said, no, Lord, I know what's going on here. And I'm not going to allow it, Lord. You have to intervene. You have to intervene. And he did. That's the intervention. The invasion. Verses 7 through 8. The enemy is preparing to attack. Why? Because they observe the Israel nation is, is moving. They're, they're starting to pray. They're going to God. Something's going on. There's fear there. See, the Philistines already have an idea. They brought the ark to these cities. They found out what happened to their gods. They found out what happened to the cities, the people of the city. They remember the story of the plagues of Egypt. They're not dumb. They're looking back going, uh-oh, I think we might be in trouble. We better get this before it gets us. You know, on the other side, Israel is afraid because of their past experience of being defeated. So what does it say? And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. People, understand, it's great that you go before God in prayer, but sometimes we need somebody to lean on, somebody to lock arms with, somebody to become our prayer partner. They're calling on Samuel to cry out. Because sometimes we're in such a place of desperation, we can't. And so we need people to come alongside of us. People we trust. People that know us and love us. And say, please pray for me in this area because I'm struggling with it. And I need all the prayer I can get in this area. There's an invasion going on in my life. And I need victory. I need deliverance from it. So please don't cease to cry out to the Lord on my behalf. So what happens? The intervention. Verses 9 through 11. Samuel takes a suckling lamb from, and offers it, the whole part of it. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. We have a sacrifice, an offering. The lamb was offered. It was complete, unblemished, a blood sacrifice. Samuel's burnt offering implied that the people gave themselves unreservedly to God. The outcry. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. It was a continued dependence. Crying out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. He continued. They asked for it. Please, Samuel, don't stop. Continue to cry out for us. Do you remember when Moses was in the battle and he would lift up his arms and Israel was winning the battle and as soon as his arms went down, they would lose and then his arms went up. Finally, they got people to hold his arms up. Sometimes we need people to hold our arms up, right? We need people to come alongside of us and say, you're weak, but we're going to help through God's strength keep your hands lifted up. Then verse 10, the outburst. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and confused them. It was a controlled panic. Why? Because God's in control and they were panicking. But the Lord thundered. Sometimes our world around us seems like it's out of control. And we freak out. Oh God, what are we going to do? Such and such is doing this, so and so is not doing this, whatever it may be. God says, I'm in control of what you see as something out of control. Sometimes we evaluate God's power through our own. That's where we get messed up. And finally, we have the offering, the outcry, the outburst, the overpowering. A conquered enemy. They were overcome before Israel. All the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back. When God's on your side, there's no fear. Nothing to be afraid of. 
When you hear during the week of the believers in foreign countries, the Middle East, all over the world, that are dying for their faith. Wow. I can't comprehend that. I don't know what I would do if I was put in that spot. I I hope God would give me the grace and the strength to withstand. But those people are committed. They Their enemies think they're overpowering them, but they're so wrong. In Christ, they've conquered that enemy. That enemy is done. And where they're going is better than where they are at the moment. And that was the other thing I had to come to realization in my own life. What if the tests come back positive? What if what's going on is going to be life-threatening? What if I have to go through certain treatment? What if? God says, it doesn't matter what if, it's what is. What is? God says, I'm in control, do you trust me? I'm in control, do you believe me? I'm in control, do you love me? I'll close with this familiar verse. We've studied it already, but I just love what it says and how it just comes to grips with what we're seeing. Romans 8, 34 through 39 Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, here we go, the extremes, right? Neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of Christ. I mean, when you internalize that and really own it, I mean, you can walk in victory, can't we? Whatever you are dealing with this morning, whatever God hasn't revealed to you yet, the uncertainty, whatever you may perceive is coming, I just want to encourage you that those are all the emotions I went through for three months. And it kept pointing down to the bottom line. It's like a funnel. You know, a funnel's really big, and then it comes down, and it comes into a little spot. I was taking all this stuff, coming down, coming down, coming down, and all of a sudden said, okay, Lord, who's in control? God says, guess what? This is my purpose, my will for your life, my affliction for your sanctification and my glorification, God's glorification, not mine, my sanctification. What better purpose is there in our lives? Believe me, three months ago, I didn't think that that was such a good deal because I was going through it. See, God had to get my attention personally to really teach me something that I thought I knew, that I thought I had a handle on. And God says, well, Ken... That's a prideful attitude. Because at the beginning of the year, as I usually do, I pray, God, draw me to yourself. I want to have a deeper desire for you. I didn't know how God was going to answer that prayer. I would have never chosen that way to answer that prayer, as many of us in this room probably could identify with. But at the end of it, I looked back and said, There's only, that, that's the only way I would have understood it, is going through this process. I could have found out a year ago going through some tests and avoided all this rigmarole. But I saw God's wisdom saying, no, I wanted you to go through this time period because this is the time I was going to teach you what you needed to learn. You know, And granted my prayer of drawing me to yourself and giving you a deeper desire and a hunger for me and my word. I mean, that is more valuable 
than anything in this world can ever offer. So my encouragement to you, again, if you're going through something in your life, it doesn't matter what it is. I want to encourage you. And I know people that are in this room have gone through more difficult things than myself, have made it through on the other side. And they were encouragement to me. But when it happens to you personally, it takes on a different meaning. It takes on a different meaning, doesn't it? So praise God for his glory. Praise God for his power. Praise God for his promises and his word. Praise God. Let's just close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for how you speak to us, how gracious you are to us, how long-suffering you are with us, but how loving and faithful you are, Lord. Even in those difficult times, you are there. Help us, Lord, as those here, you know their hearts. You see their hearts. You know their struggles. You know the things each one of us are going through. And Lord, we come before you and we offer ourselves as a sacrifice as Steve is teaching, a living sacrifice before your throne. And Lord, if there's somebody here who does not know you, does not understand this, God, would you quicken their heart, help them see their need for you in their life? Because in this world, there's only temporary fixes. But Father, through you, through Christ, through his sacrifice on our behalf for our sin, there is eternal change And, Lord, we just are so thankful that, Lord, we can come into your presence no matter what time of the day or night. Your ears are always attentive. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We ask you to bless us. Bless this time. We think of those who gave their lives for our freedom to be able to stand here and preach your word. That, Lord, you would bless those families who have given sacrifices. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.